Good afternoon, everyone. Are Christians required to keep the law of Moses? If someone were to ask you that question, how would you answer? If Christians are required to keep the law of Moses, what does that mean? Or if Christians are not required to keep the law of Moses, what does that mean? This very question was a thorny one for the early church, and it led to considerable controversy. It has remained a key question among those calling themselves Christian ever since then. And some of you are no doubt familiar with the apostasy within the Worldwide Church of God some 20 years ago, and the question of law-keeping was a key issue in that controversy. And it's not only been in that church, but other churches as well, where these questions are discussed and sometimes controversial. Now, it's my belief, and it's the belief of the members of this church, at least I assume it is the belief of the members of this church, that according to Scripture, Christians are indeed obligated to obey God's laws. For example, in Matthew 19, verse 17, we read, So he said to them, Why do you call me good? That is, Jesus was asking this question. Why do you call me good? No one is good but one that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. That's what Jesus said. If you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Another scripture in John 14, verse 15, Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commandments. And in Romans chapter 2, verse 25, Paul wrote, Circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law. And I could go on with many more scriptures from the New Testament and, of course, many from the Old Testament as well, showing that we are indeed obligated to keep God's commandments. We also teach that in conjunction with the idea that a person is obligated to keep the commandments of God as a matter of faith that if one simply refuses to keep God's commandments, in turn, he cannot be saved. Notice Jesus' statement here in Matthew chapter 7, beginning with verse 22. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name. Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So here are people who are doing things in the name of Christ, even casting out demons, 
prophesying or preaching, ministering in the name of Christ, even working miracles, and it says, Jesus will say to them, I never knew you, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Jesus went on to say, therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But whoever hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, and it fell, and the great was its fall. Matthew 13, verse 41, Jesus said, The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Revelation 22, verse 14, we read, Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. So these are just, again, a few scriptures on which we base our teaching that a Christian is obligated to obey the commandments of God. But that is not the prevailing teaching of popular Christianity. Many who profess to be Christians say that, in effect, law and grace stand in opposition to one another, that salvation by grace requires nothing more than a profession in faith. And there are quite a number of Christian ministers who, who explicitly teach what I'm describing here. You will find it in various publications as well as probably wouldn't be that hard to find it on television or the internet or many churches that one might go to to listen to their sermons and so forth. According to this teaching, which is prevalent among many churches of Christianity, at least those who profess Christianity, that while obeying some of the laws might be desirable, it's not required for salvation. According to that view, it frustrates grace, as they might put it, to require a commitment to obedience as a condition of salvation. Such a requirement is said to constitute legalism. To sum it up in a catchphrase we're familiar with, the gospel is Christ plus nothing. Salvation is Christ plus nothing, it's said. In the popular teaching, Christ and the law are presented in conflict with one another. Christ replaced the law, we're told. And hence the law is not a guide for Christian conduct. And anyone who says that you must obey the commandments, you must keep the Sabbath, you must tithe, or similar statements is a legalist and is minimizing the sacrifice of Christ. There are several 
key scriptures that are used to support such teachings. Two significant areas of scripture related to this controversy are the book of Galatians and chapter 15 of the book of Acts. In today's sermon, I want to discuss the issues in the book of Acts chapter 15 in detail so that we can have a comprehensive understanding of exactly what we're told in that chapter, what it says and what it does not say in terms of our obligation toward God as Christians in respect to obedience to his laws. At some later time, I plan to discuss in detail also the book of Galatians, but today I want to focus on the book of Acts chapter 15. And actually, there, there, there are some complex issues that are dealt with in that book that will take some time to explain thoroughly. And so this will take more than one sermon to explain this subject, to explain this chapter thoroughly and what it tells us and does not tell us about our obligations toward God. But in Acts chapter 15, verse 5, is one statement that has raised controversy, as it was controversial even at that time. In Acts 15, verse 5, some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up, saying it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now, these were Pharisees who had been converted to Christianity. Pharisees, a Pharisee indicates a person who was of a sect among the Jews, a sect that existed at the time of Jesus Christ, and they had certain common beliefs. And more important than that, they had a body of tradition that they regarded as law. And they believed that that tradition was what identified one as a true believer in God and the controversy here involved Gentiles who were being converted into Christianity at that time and it was the position of these Pharisees these Christian Pharisees who had been Pharisees that it was necessary for their salvation, the salvation of, of, of Gentile converts, it was necessary for them to be circumcised, and it was also necessary for them to keep the law of Moses, as it's stated here. Then in verse 24 of Acts 15, James said in addressing the church conference that is what most of the book of Acts, the chapter of Acts 15 is about. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words unsettling your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment. So James said that these people had been uh, going out to various places and told Gentile converts that they had to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses, James said we did not give any such commandment. And in verse 28, 
James stated it, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you, and this was addressed to Gentile converts, no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well, farewell. This was a letter that was written to the Gentile converts to summarize the conclusions that they'd reached at this conference in Acts 15. Concerning this question of circumcision and the law of Moses. Now, to, to get a better idea of the context of the controversy, let's go back to verse 1, beginning with verse 1. It says, Certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So they were coming down, I believe this was to Antioch, which was a predominantly Gentile city, although there were Jews there as there were in virtually all of the cities of the Roman Empire of any size. But they were primarily Gentiles, and there were a number of Gentile converts in the church at that time. And here were people who had come down from Judea and told the brethren unless you are circumcised according to the the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. This is talking about physical circumcision. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. So they stopped at various congregations on their way and discussed the conversion of these Gentiles where they had been. And in verse 4, when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders And they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and command them to keep the law of Moses. So here were certain ones, Jewish Christians, particularly people who had been Pharisees, who were claiming that Gentile converts had to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. Paul and Barnabas, who were leaders in the church, disputed this contention. And so it became an issue in the church. Now, circumcision was, as we read, the immediate issue. And the Pharisees had long taught that a convert to Judaism, a Gentile convert to Judaism, had to be circumcised to be accepted into the community as a full-fledged convert. Now, not all Jews believe that. Not all of them taught or practiced that. The Sadducees in particular taught just the opposite, that a Gentile convert did not have to be circumcised to be accepted into the community. And there are certain sources that tell us that in the diaspora in the West, 
the western part of the empire, it was not a requirement. Commonly among the Jewish congregations to require Gentile converts to be circumcised, to be accepted into their communities. So circumcision was the immediate issue, but beyond that was the question of keeping the law of Moses. Now, there are three questions here that we might ask to gain understanding concerning the law of Moses. First of all, exactly what does that mean? What is the law of Moses? How is the law of Moses defined? And also, the second question is, does Acts 15 state or imply that one who is a Christian need not keep the law of Moses? And thirdly, if it is implied or stated in Acts 15 that one need not keep the law of Moses, exactly what does that mean? And, of course, these questions are all interrelated. Let's begin with the first question, what is the law of Moses? If you're solving a problem, it's usually a good idea to define your terms so you understand exactly what you're dealing with, and that's very important to the solution of what we need to understand from Acts 15. How is the law of Moses defined in Scripture, first of all? How does Scripture define the law of Moses? And also, how was this term understood by the church at that time, the time of the conference in Acts 15? How did the church understand the term, the law of Moses? So let's begin with how Scripture itself defines this term. Notice in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 1. Deuteronomy 5, verse 1. Moses called all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and judgments which I speak in your hearing today, that you may learn them and be careful to observe them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb, the Lord did not make this covenant with our fathers, but with us, those who are here today and all of, us, all of us who are alive. The Lord talked with you face to face on the mountain from the midst of the fire. I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up to the mountain. So what Moses is describing here is what happened God had appeared on Mount Sinai he had spoken with his own voice which the people heard certain commandments which we know as the Ten Commandments and the people were scared out of their wits when this occurred and they pleaded with God not to speak to them any further but to speak to them through Moses and so God called Moses up to the mountain and declared to Moses further laws that were supplementary to the Ten Commandments, ancillary to them, laws that explained exactly how to apply those commandments in various 
situations. And these were the laws that Moses taught to Israel. In Deuteronomy 5, verse 22, these words the Lord spoke to all your assembly in the mountain from the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness with a loud voice. He added no more. In other words, he did not add to anything he said at that time that was within their hearing. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. These are the Ten Commandments. Verse 31 of the same chapter, Deuteronomy 5, it says, But as for you, stand here by me, and I will speak to you all the commandments. God is speaking to Moses here. The statutes and the judgments which you shall teach them, that they may observe them in the land which I have given them, which I am giving them to possess. So, God had spoken the Ten Commandments, and then he told Moses to teach all the commandments, statutes, and judgments which he gave to him on the mountain. And in Exodus 24 and verse 12, we see the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and be there, and I will give you the tablets of stone, the law and commandments which I have written, that you may teach them. And in Exodus 24, beginning with verse 3, it says, Moses came and told all the people the words of the Lord and all the judgments, and the people answered with one voice and said, All the words, of the Lord, all the words that the Lord has said, we will do. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord and rose up, arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. So Moses spoke these words that God had given him to the people and they said, we will do them. But he also wrote them down in a book. And in verse 7 of Exodus 24, it says, then he took the book of the covenant and read it, uh, read in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. So notice what was occurring here. God was giving to the people a set of laws. And they were agreeing to abide by those laws. That was the Constitution, if you want to put it in those terms, for the nation of Israel being established under God's rulership at that time. And those were the laws that God had given them. They were, they were given to Moses directly by God. He told them to the people. He also wrote them down in a book, and they said, we will live by these rules. And other material was added to the book at various times during their sojourn in the wilderness until eventually Moses had written what we know as the first five books of the Bible, which is often referred to as the Pentateuch. Now, there are actually several definitions of the law of Moses as the, this term is used in the Bible. 
the first biblical definition of this term, the law of Moses, is everything that is written in the Pentateuch, or the first five books of the Bible. So this this is an important point. I would suggest if you want to understand this, you write this down. The very first biblical definition of this term, the law of Moses, is everything that is written in the Pentateuch or the first five books of the Bible. The, the, the five books of Moses are referred to in the Old Testament by the Hebrew term Sefer HaTorah, Sefer HaTorah, or the law book, or the book of the law. That is what it is referred to a number of places in the Old Testament, the book of the law or the law book. In Deuteronomy 31 and verse 26, for example, it says, take this book of the law, this Sefer HaTorah, and put it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God that it may be there as a witness against you. This book of the law was written down and then a copy of this book was placed in the Ark of the Covenant. In the Ark of the Covenant were several items, and among those items were the tablets upon which the Ten Commandments had been written, and also this book of the law, among other things. And that was the Ark of the Covenant. In other words, it was a, the Ark refers to just the fact that it was a, a container in which to carry these artifacts which represented the covenant that God had made with Israel. And at the heart of that covenant were the Ten Commandments and this book of the law, the books that Moses had written. In Joshua 1 and verse 8, it says this book of the law, God was speaking to Joshua here, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. Then you will, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Another term for the law of Moses, or the law that we're discussing here is simply Haterah, which means the law. You find this term a number of places in the Old Testament, including Nehemiah chapter 8 and elsewhere. The word Torah simply means instruction or law. And the Jews commonly referred to the books of Moses as the Torah, the law. It's accepted belief among the Jews and was accepted belief at the time of Jesus that the law of Moses included everything found in the Pentateuch and actually a lot more than that as we will discuss later. But it's important, first of all, that we understand that one of the definitions from the scripture concerning the law of Moses is that it is what is written in the first five books of the Bible. This is a statement from the Kyle and Delich commentary. And 
Kyle and Delich state the rabbins, that is the Jewish rabbis, teachers, understand the words, the law, in Deuteronomy 20, 31, verse 9 and verse 24 as relating to the whole Torah. From Genesis 1 to Deuteronomy 34. In other words, all of the five books of the Bible were understood by the Jews to be the law, as they referred to it. Now, it's been taught in the past among some in the Church of God that the Ten Commandments are the law of God. And the law of Moses is different from that. The law of Moses consists only of added civil statutes and sacrificial ordinances. But that teaching is false, and there is no ground for it in Scripture. The law of Moses is not just ritual law. It is not just laws that were added to God's laws, as some have viewed it. That is not what the Bible teaches. In Deuteronomy chapter 31 and verse 9, it says, Moses wrote this law and delivered it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and to all the elders of Israel. Again, we see that it was written down in a book and it was delivered to the Levites and the elders among the people of Israel, the leaders, which is what this term often means as it's used in Scripture, elder. Deuteronomy 31, verse 24, it's so it was when Moses had completed writing the words of this law in a book, when they were finished, that Moses commanded the Levites who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, saying, Take this book of the law and put it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there as a witness against you. And so the Levites were charged with maintaining this book, which they did down through the ages. In Joshua 22 and verse 5, we read again as Joshua was instructing the people of Israel, he said, take careful heed to do the commandment and the law which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to keep his commandments, to hold fast to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua told them to keep the commandments and the laws which had been commanded to them through Moses, the servant of God. In Joshua 23 and verse 6, we read, Therefore be very courageous to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses. Notice that this book is called the book of the law of Moses. The book of the law of Moses, lest you turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left. So here the book that Moses wrote down and gave to the Levites to preserve is referred to specifically as the book of the law of Moses. 
and contained within that book, of course, are the Ten Commandments, as well as other laws. And in 1 Kings chapter 2 and verse 3, 1 Kings 2 and verse 3, we read, Keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his judgments, and his testimonies as it is written in the law of Moses. Notice it says to keep his God's statutes, his commandments, his judgments, and his testimonies as it is written in the law of Moses that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. So we see that the law of Moses is not just certain ritual laws, but it is the statutes, the commandments, the judgments, and the testimonies written in the law of Moses. All of those are included in the law of Moses. And in Second Chronicles 34 and verse 14, we see that all of the laws of God that were written are part of the law of Moses. In verse 14, 2 Chronicles 34, Now when they brought out the money that was brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found in the book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. Notice it was the law, it's, it's, it is described here as the law of the Lord given by Moses. The book of the law of the Lord. The law of the Lord and the law of Moses are syn synonymous. They're the same thing. Because the laws that Moses wrote down in that book came from God. They were God's laws. They weren't Moses' laws in the sense that they originated with him. They originated with God. God gave him those laws and told him to write them down and teach the people those laws. And that's how they are described in Scripture. In Ezra 7 and verse 6, we read the law of Moses referred to as the law of the eternal. In Ezra 7 and verse 6, thus Ezra came up from Babylon and he was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. Notice that the law of Moses is described as the law of the Lord, or Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel. The law that God had given. And the king granted him all his requests according to the hand of of the Lord his God upon him. In Nehemiah 8 verse 1 it says, Now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses which the Lord had commanded Israel. Notice it was the book of the law of Moses which the Lord had commanded Israel. Israel. And in verses 7 and 8, it tells about various Levites who helped the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place, and so they read distinctly from the book 
in the law of God. Now notice this same book called the law of Moses is here referred to as the book of the law of God. And they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. So the law of Moses and the law of God are exactly the same thing. In Luke chapter 2 and verse 22, speaking of the time of Jesus' birth or following shortly upon his birth, and it says, Now when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, it's speaking of Mary, I believe, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves, two young pigeons. Now, these, these statements here are quoted from the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus primarily deals with the sacrificial system and the laws pertaining to the Levitical priesthood. They, they contain the uh, laws, not just that those laws are exclusively in Leviticus, but a good deal of that book is dedicated to laws of purification and sacrifice and so forth. And so it is these laws that are being discussed, laws of purification and, and sacrifice, and notice that the, these laws are referred to as the law of the Lord as well as the law of Moses. So the idea that somehow the law of the Lord are the Ten Commandments and the law of Moses is just ritual law or possibly ritual law and civil law is not accurate. cannot be supported from what the Bible itself actually says. Now, the scriptures of the Old what we call the Old Testament, were divided into sections, you might say. And they were commonly divided into three separate parts, which were the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Writings. And in Luke 24, verse 44, Jesus said, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. This is what Jesus said. Now, when he made this statement, he was referring to all the scriptures of the what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. And he referred to them as they were commonly referred to among the Jews or divided into three different parts. The law of Moses, that is the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the prophets, and the writings, as they are called, or the Psalms, and Jesus refers to them as the Psalms because the Psalms was the largest book among the writings and so was representative of the entirety of the of the different books of the Old Testament. 
including included in the writings. So, again, there is no support for the idea that the Ten Commandments are the law of God and the law of Moses consists only of other laws that were added, such as laws concerning sacrifice and so forth. So, one meaning of the term the law of Moses is the first five books of the Bible with all the laws, the statutes, and the judgments contained in those books, including the Ten Commandments. Now, there is also another meaning concerning the term the law of Moses, and that is in both in the Bible and in Jewish usage, the law of Moses is also equated with the Old Covenant. The law of Moses, since it was so central to the covenant, is often used as a term referencing the covenant itself. Now, the covenant, what a covenant is an agreement. And the basis of that agreement, the foundation, was in fact the law that Moses had written down that God gave them, which as we read, the people said, we will obey your words. That was the agreement. And so the agreement itself came to be called the law of Moses. And when Paul uses the term the law, in fact, in his epistles, he is almost always referring to it in that sense, in the sense of the Old Covenant. The sense of the law as it was understood by the majority of Jews of his day, this was commonly uh, spoken of in this way. The, The covenant was commonly spoken of by the Jews of the days of Jesus and Paul as the law. That's how they referred to it. But it was the law as viewed through the prism of Jewish tradition. And we will establish both of these points. First, let's discuss the point that the law is equated with the Old Covenant. Now, as I said, the, the, the word the, the covenant simply means an agreement. The Hebrew word for covenant is berit, which essentially means an agreement. And the verb pertaining to a covenant is karath, which means to cut or to cut off or to cut a covenant. And that usage is derived from the fact that in the biblical culture, a covenant usually involved the sharing of a sacrifice. And so the sacrifice was cut or divided between the parties to a covenant commonly and by eating the same flesh the parties symbolically showed that they had agreed or come to be of one mind in what they had agreed upon by sharing a covenant sacrifice the old covenant was an agreement between God and the nation of Israel and the people as we read had agreed to be faithful to God and to obey him. In Exodus 19, verse 5, 
God said to Israel, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you will be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all these words which the Lord commanded him. Then all the people answered together and said, All that the word is spoken, we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. And this is repeated several other places, as we've already read a couple of other places where this same idea is conveyed. And God told the people of Israel that if they lived by their agreement, if they did what they had agreed to do, to obey his laws, that they would be blessed. This was part of the covenant, a very important part of it. Now, notice what what was included in this. Israel would be a special people above other people of the earth in certain respects, in terms of favor with God, if they would keep this covenant, because other nations were not living by God's laws, nor were they, for that matter, at that time, but they they had agreed to do that. And also they would they would be blessed. They would be given special blessings. Now this came to be a very important to the Jews at the time of Jesus, the, the concepts of this covenant, they regarded themselves as unique on the earth. A unique people. Different from anyone else because of this covenant. A people specially favored by God because of this covenant, which they called the law. In Deuteronomy 5, Verse 31, God said to Israel, well, said to Moses here, I guess, at this point, he said, As for you, stand here by me, and I will speak to you all the commandments, the statutes, and judgments, which you shall teach them, that they may observe them in the land which I am giving them to possess. Therefore you shall be careful to do as the Lord God, your God, has commanded you. You shall not turn to the right hand or to the left, you shall walk in all the ways which the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live, and that it may be well with you, and that you may prolong your days in the land which you shall possess. And then in Leviticus 26, and we won't take time to read all of that because much of the chapter is devoted to God telling the people the blessings they would receive for obedience to his laws, which they had agreed to. That was, that was the covenant. And part of the covenant was that if they obeyed, they would receive blessings, specific blessings that were enumerated in Leviticus 26 the sa- and, and, and in Deuteronomy 28. We read the same rehearsing of similar blessings for obedience. 
On the other hand, in those same chapters, God promised to curse them if they were unfaithful to their agreement, to the covenant. He told them that if they did not obey his commandments as they had agreed to, that he would bring curses upon them. Now, in this covenant were elements of both law and grace or favor toward God. This covenant was a covenant of grace. The blessings that God was promising to Israel were blessings that flowed from his graciousness, from his grace and mercy. Now, there were laws connected with it, but these blessings were a manifestation of the grace of God, or uh, in in a fundamental sense, the the words used translated into grace in Hebrew and Greek simply mean favor, and in this case, favor with God. And when you're blessed by God, that is one way in which God shows you favor. And so the people were promised that they would stand in favor with God if they were obedient to this covenant agreement. So they would be recipients of God's grace. The common idea that there is some fundamental conflict between law and grace is false. The grace that God promised to the people of Israel was directly connected with his laws and commandments. But the laws were at the core of the covenant, and so the term the law came to imply all that pertained to that covenant. Now here's what Vine's Complete Expository Dictionary of Old and New Testament Words says in discussing the word covenant as translated from the Hebrew. And it says, Covenant is parallel or equivalent to the Hebrew words dabar or word, hawk, statute, pakud, precepts, edah, testimony, Torah, law, and hesed, loving kindness. And they give scriptures to reference in all of these cases, these words which relate to the Hebrew word for covenant. These words, it goes on to say, emphasize the authority and grace of God in making and keeping the covenant and the specific responsibility of man under the covenant. So the covenant featured responsibilities and blessings and rewards. And at their core was the law. So let's take a more detailed look at how the law is identified with the old covenant in Scripture. In Deuteronomy 4 and verse 1, they were told that they were to keep the commandments of God that Moses taught them. Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and judgments which I teach you to observe that you may live and go in and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers is giving you. You shall not add to the word which I command you nor take from it. 
that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. Going on in verse 13, Moses is rehearsing what happened at Mount Sinai. So he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded to you, you to perform the Ten Commandments. Notice here that the, that the Ten Commandments are referred to as the covenant. He declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and judgments that you might observe them in the land which you cross over to possess. So the commandments are specifically referred to here as the covenant. In Deuteronomy 31 and verse 25, says, Moses commanded the Levites who bore the Ark of the Covenant, saying, Take this book of the law and put it beside the Ark of the Covenant, that it may be there as a witness against you. And as, as I mentioned earlier, the Ark is referred to as the Ark of the Covenant, inside of which were the Ten Commandments. I think I said the law was in there, too. It was not actually in the uh, Ark, but the law book lay beside it, accompanied it. And the tablets of the Ten Commandments were inside the ark. And we read in other scriptures that when the people of Israel broke the commandments, they were said to not be keeping the covenant. For example, in Psalm 78 verse 10, it says, they did not keep the covenant of God and refused to walk in his law. So by refusing to walk in God's law, they were not keeping the covenant, showing that the law was, in fact, the covenant, in a sense. In Exodus 34 and verse 1, it says, the Lord said to Moses, cut two tablets of stone like the first ones, and I will write on these tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Then in going on in verse 27 of Exodus 34, Moses wrote words which reflected the covenant. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for according to the tenor of these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights, neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten, Commandment, the Ten Commandments. Notice again the Ten Commandments are called the words of the covenant. Now it was so when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand when he came down from the mountain that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while, he talk, uh, shone while he talked with him, while he talked with God. So when Aaron and the <clears throat> children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Then Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the children of Israel came Near and he gave them as commandments all that the Lord had spoken 
with him on Mount Sinai, notice that everything that God had told him, including the Ten Commandments, were conveyed to the people of Israel. And when he finished speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take the veil off until he came out. And he would come out and speak to the children of Israel whatever had been commanded. And whenever the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone, then Moses would put the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with him. So what is being told to us here is that when Moses went up on the mountain to converse with God and God gave him these commandments, that Moses' face shone with this luminescent brilliance when he came down off the mountain and it was so bright that the people of Israel could not look directly into his face because of the brilliance of the light emanating from the face of Moses. Now, Paul wrote about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And he wrote about the contrast between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And he mentions that the one of the differences is that the New Covenant was not written on stones, but on the heart. And he... He indicates that the veil that Moses put on his face when he came down out of the mountain has to do with the nature of the covenant which God had made with Israel. And he also refers to the old covenant as being equated with the reading of Moses or the books of Moses, the books of the Pentateuch. He says that when one turns to the Lord that the veil is taken away. Notice in 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 3, clearly you are an epistle of Christ. He wrote to the Corinthians, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh and of the heart. Then in verse 6 he says, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. That it, uh, But if the ministry of death, written and engraved on stones, was glorious. Now, the ministry of death that he's talking about is the ministry of the old covenant. The covenant that was represented by the commandments being written on tablets of stone. But he says this was a glorious covenant. And it was so glorious, he says, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away. That is, it faded away after a while. How will, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious for if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. Now notice how he refers to the old covenant 
with its system, its ministry, as he refers to it here, he refers to it as a ministry of death and a ministry of condemnation. But he refers to the new covenant as a ministry of righteousness. Of verse 13, he goes on to say, unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so, the so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. What he's saying is that this old covenant was a temporary covenant. And it was intended to be temporary from the very beginning, as evidenced by the glory that eventually faded from the face of Moses. He goes on to say, But their minds were blinded, for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament. Now the word testament here is the Greek word diakake. Diakake, I believe is what, it's, what it is. This didn't come out in uh, Greek in the printing of this, so it's hard to make it out here. But anyway... It says this uh, state, this word being used is the word for covenant or agreement as translated uh, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. This is the word used for the Hebrew word for covenant. And so we could read this, uh, the veil remains unlifted in the reading of the old covenant because the veil is taken away in Christ but even to this day when Moses read is read a veil lies on their heart nevertheless when one turns to the lord of the veil is taken away so what he's saying is that the people of Israel even though they had the scriptures did not have a real comprehension or understanding of the scriptures. And that lack of understanding is taken away when one turns to the Lord. When, in other words, when one repents. The problem is that most of them had never re really repented of their sins. So when, when they were reading the scriptures, they didn't really understand them because they lacked the spiritual wherewithal to grasp the deeper teachings of the scriptures which only comes with repentance and the Holy Spirit in, Gen in Galatians 4 and verse 4 Paul wrote when the fullness of time had come God sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons now here Paul is using the term the law and he's using it as of those who were born under the old covenant system. And Christ came born under that system. We remember we read, we read where uh, uh, Jesus' mother went to the temple to offer a sacrifice after Jesus was born as is specified in the law. But it says that he was sent to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. So being under the law is equated with being under the covenant 
that was given at Mount Sinai, which leads to bondage, as Paul writes here in verse 21 of Galatians 4. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise, which things are symbolic, for these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai. Now notice how he is equating the law here with the covenant from Mount Sinai which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar, in this analogy Paul is using. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children at the time this was written. Now notice that he does not say that the covenant was bondage. He does not say that the law is bondage. And this is where many jump the track in the book of Galatians, claiming that Paul taught that the law is bondage and slavery. Paul did not teach that. He does not say that. What he did say is that this law, this covenant, engendered bondage, gave birth to bondage. And it was not bondage. In fact, God told the people of Israel... When he gave them the commandments, he prefaced it with this statement. In Exodus 20, verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. So what Paul mean this covenant engendered bondage? Well, remember that what we said, God said that if you obey this covenant, you will be blessed, you will be able to live in your land with all of these blessings, and you'll live there forever, basically. But he also said, if you break this covenant, you will be sent back into slavery. Did they keep it? No, they didn't. They broke it. And the penalty for their breaking of the covenant was death and curses and slavery. Bondage. And so, after several hundred years of God dealing with the people of Israel under this covenant and them refusing to keep, remain faithful to the covenant, they were sent into captivity. First, the nation of Israel was sent into captivity, and then later Judah, as God had promised them would happen. In Leviticus 26 and verse 17, he was telling them if they broke that covenant, if they would not keep his laws, he said, I will set my face against you, and you shall be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you shall reign over you, and you shall flee when no one pursues you. Verse 25, he said, I will bring a sword against you that will execute the vengeance of the covenant. Notice it is the vengeance of the covenant. When you are gathered together within your cities, I will send pestilence among you, and you shall be delivered into the hand of your enemy. And I will, verse 33, I will scatter you among the nations and draw out a sword after you and your land shall be desolate and your cities waste. These, this was a part of the covenant. 
That's why the covenant engendered bondage, because this is precisely what happened to the people of Israel and Judah under that covenant. In Deuteronomy 4 and verse 27, The Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations, where the Lord will drive you. And so we read in 2 Kings 17, where the Assyrians came and took Israel captive, it says they rejected his statutes and his covenant that he had made with their fathers, and his testimonies which he had testified against them. They followed idols, became idolaters, and went after the nations who were all around them concerning whom the Lord had charged them that they should not do like them. So they left off the commandments of the Lord their God, made for themselves a molded image and two calves, made a wooden image and worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal. And they caused their sons and daughters to pass through the fire. In other words, they were sacrificing their children to these false gods, burning them alive at times. Practiced witchcraft and soothsaying and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his sight. There was none left but the tribe of Judah alone. Also Judah did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the statutes of Israel which they made. And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel, afflicted them and delivered them into the hand of plunderers until he had cast them from his sight. For he tore Israel from the house of David, and they made Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, king. Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them commit a great sin. For the children of Israel walked in all the sins of Jeroboam, which he did, and they did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight, as he had said by all his servants the prophets. So Israel was carried away from the own land to Assyria as it is to this day. So this was what happened under the covenant. And the covenant was called the law. So the law engendered bondage. as we just read, because of their disobedience to the commandments. So, the first definition of the law of Moses is all that is written in the Pentateuch. The second definition of the law is its use in the scriptures is the Old Covenant, the whole ball of wax so to speak the whole system there's also another definition which is found in scripture and that is the way in which the Jews often used the term at the time of Christ and the time of the New Testament and still to do today and that is, they use this term, the law, in reference to all of their, all, all that we've stated already, but in addition to that, their traditions. 
their own man-made traditions. Now, to the Pharisees, who were an influential force in the Jewish religion by the time of Christ, the law of Moses was viewed in a very particular way. As I mentioned earlier, it was viewed through the prism of rabbinic tradition, a tradition which had been developed for at least a couple of centuries or so. And this was a tradition which was much more than the written law. And in fact, this tradition, which was an oral tradition at the time, it was later written down, but this tradition carried more weight and more authority in the eyes of the Pharisees than Scripture itself. In The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah by Alfred Edersheim, he comments on this. He says, What opposed the new doctrine of the kingdom is talking about the gospel. The first place must here be assigned to those legal determinations which traditionalism declared absolutely binding on all, not only of equal but even greater obligation than Scripture itself. Thus we read, and he's quoting from the Talmud, I believe, or the Mishnah, uh, the sayings of the elders have more weight than those of the prophets. This was a Jewish teaching. The sayings of the elders, that is, their rabbis, have more weight than those of the prophets. Also, an offense against the sayings of the scribes is worse than one against those of Scripture. Edersheim goes on to say, and this not illogically, since the tradition was considered to be equally of divine origin with the Holy Scripture as the Pharisees viewed it. These traditional ordinances bear in general bear the general name of Halakha as including alike the way in which the fathers had walked and that which their children were bound to follow. These Halakoth, word Halakha simply means the way, these Halakoth are these traditions, ordinances, man-made laws, were either simply the laws laid down in Scripture or else derived from them or traced to it by some ingenious and artificial method of exegesis or added to it by way of amplification and for safety's sake or finally legalized customs. They provided for every possible and impossible case, entered into every detail of private, family, and public life, and with iron logic, unbending rigor, and most minute analysis pursued and dominated man, turn whither he might, laying on him a yoke which was truly unbearable. This is from the life and times of Jesus the Messiah by Edersheim. Now, what he's saying is that this oral law with its traditions was impossible to keep. And in fact, it was deliberately made virtually impossible to keep by the ones who constructed this law, as you will find if you study into it. Now, these traditional ordinances, known as the sayings of the scribes or the rabbis, required no scriptural authority. And often they had no scriptural authority whatsoever. And yet they came to be regarded as equal or superior to the scriptures. 
And so Jesus said, notice what Jesus commented about this in Matthew 23 and verse 1. Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. By the way, what he means by that is that they were both the religious and the civil authorities among the Jews at that time, as Moses was. They had both civil and religious jurisdiction under the Roman government, but they, they were uh, the civil authorities as well as the religious authorities. And so Jesus said, therefore, whatever they tell you, observe. In other words, we're, you're to obey the laws, just like in any society. Without observing do, do not do according to their works, for they say and do not, for they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. Move could also be re, uh, translated from the Greek as remove. And the these laws, these traditions, could be laid on or removed according to the judgment of a rabbinic authority. A rabbi or a collection of rabbis could declare these laws binding or not binding according to their will. Now it is this law which Peter refers to in Acts 15 verse 10. It is the law that included Jewish traditions which could be moved or, or uh, could be bound or removed by rabbinic judgments. As notice what Peter said in verse 10 of Acts 15, Now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? Remember the people that were pushing this doctrine were Pharisees. Their view of the law of Moses was the view of the pharisaical version of the law of Moses, which included their traditions, their oral traditions. And they asserted that not just the written law, but the oral law also was given to Moses at Mount Sinai. In the Encyclopedia Britannica, it states, while the phrase Torah given at to Moses at Sinai may be understood in a restricted sense, in other words, as the Pentateuch, the Pharisaic rabbinic tradition originated by the Pharisees and continued by the Talmudic rabbis viewed it as referring to a wide body of teaching. According to this position, which dominated Jewish thought until the modern era and still commands the allegiance of traditionalists, the encounter between God and Israel at Sinai deposited not only the written Torah, but also an oral Torah that was transmuted from generation to generation. So, in their view, the Torah, the law, the law of Moses, or the law, included their traditions. And Adersheim adds, this statement, according to the Jewish view, God had given Moses on Mount Sinai alike the oral 
and the written law. That is the law with all its interpretations and applications. From Exodus 20 and verse 1, it was inferred that God had communicated to Moses the Bible, the Mishnah, the Talmud, and the Haggadah. These are Jewish books of traditional law. Even of that which the scholars would in latest times propound. So, this is the concept that the Pharisees among the Christians would have had of what the law of Moses means. Keeping the law of Moses would have meant keeping it as the scribes, the majority of whom were Pharisees. Keeping it as the scribes understood it and taught it and as they viewed it through their own traditions. And it is these very traditions which were the basis of the conflict between Jesus and the Jewish leaders of his, of his days of sojourn on the earth. In Mark chapter 7 and verse 1, for example, it says the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, to Jesus, having come from Jerusalem, when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. When they, came from the market, when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? He answered and said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. He said to them, All too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, If a man says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me is korban, that is, a gift to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down, and many such things you do. So what Jesus was pointing out was that their traditions were not only man-made commandments, but they were often directly contrary to the commandments of God himself. And yet they were considered the law of Moses by those people. So when we read in Acts 15 that some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up, saying it is necessary to circumcise them and command them to keep the law of Moses, we need to understand the implication of this teaching. And that implication is that the Gentile converts would have had to live 
under the provisions of the Old Covenant. And further, it implied that they would have had to observe the rabbinical traditional ordinances which had become, in the Jewish mind, a part of the law. To keep the law as the Pharisees would have had it would have required Gentile converts to be circumcised. It would have required them to offer a sacrifice at Jerusalem because that also was one of the requirements of Jewish tradition at the time for a convert. It would have meant that they would have had to keep the Jewish laws of purity, the laws that we were that Christ was talking about, the washing of pitchers and cups and couches and various other things, the ceremonial washings that Jesus condemned. It would have meant that they would could not keep company nor eat with other Gentiles because that too was a requirement of the law according to Jewish tradition that, Jew, uh, that Jews were not allowed to eat with Gentiles. So this is what would have been required of Gentile converts if the church had accepted the argument of this group of Pharisees among the Christians. And so Paul, writing about the same controversy in the book of Galatians, chapter 5, verse 31, said, I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. In other words, what he's saying, if you give into this pressure to be circumcised as Jewish tradition requires, then you will have to keep all of their traditions which he refers to here as the whole law. So we, I hope we've answered the question, what is meant by the law of Moses? And in this case, it was not just the commandments, not only the word of God written in the Pentateuch, but it was the entire Old Covenant system, and moreover, it was the body of Pharisaical traditions added to those things. Now, the second question that we asked at the beginning was, does Acts 15 imply that we need not keep the law of Moses? And that answer ought to be plain as well. The church took a very strong position that Gentile converts were not required to keep the law of Moses as the term was then used and understood, particularly among the Pharisaical Christians who were seeking to force them to keep the law of Moses according to their ideas about it. Notice what happened a little later. After this conference, Paul had come to Jerusalem, and James said to him uh, about uh, news that people had been converted through Paul's ministry, and he said, when they heard it, they glorified the Lord, and they said to him, you see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. But they have been informed, informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children nor walk according to the customs, the traditions. See, that's what was meant by the law of Moses. It wasn't only being circumcision, the circumcised. It was not just keeping the commandments. It was walking according to the customs 
or the traditions. This is in Acts chapter 21, verses 20 and 21 and 20, 20, and then now 24 and 25. So James said to Paul concerning some Gentile companions, he said, take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses. No, this was some uh, people being, some Jews, I believe, being uh, purified after a, after a, uh, a vow. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. They all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. But concerning the law, again, being the customs, the traditions, but concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and de- decide, uh, decided that they should observe no such thing. They were not obliged to keep these customs, except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. There were certain things having to do with uh, specific requirements of purification. This is what it's talking about, is purification rituals and laws that they did have to observe. But the other things, the Jewish ordinances and purification rituals and laws, they were not obliged to observe. Now, you might ask, how did they arrive at that conclusion? And what are the implications for us in terms of our obedience to God? And these questions... We will have to leave for another time unless you want to spend several more hours here this afternoon. (laughs) But I don't think you do. Brethren, please take your hymnals and turn to page 118. Go ye therefore into all the world. Stand. After this, please remain standing for the closing prayer. Page 118.
Father in heaven, we're very grateful for the blessings you give to us. We're very grateful for your word and for the clarity that's in it and for the guidance that we receive from it. I do pray that you would help us to remember these words and to further understand your will for us. We do pray that you would be with our family and friends who are ill and who couldn't be here today for whatever reason, that you would heal them, bring them back for us for services next week. And we pray that you would protect us as we're traveling today and that you would be with us the rest of the week and guide us in all mercy and grace in your word. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.